0: The tree of life. Something happened. Something happened in the history of man, and I want to look at that in chapter 3. And it has affected every one of us tonight. In chapter 3, let's begin the reading in verse 1. And you know the story. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. I don't think she was adding anything to what God said. I think God had said more than what is written. This is a very abbreviated uh, uh, writing of what all happened in the garden. We don't understand all that was going on there. And in chapter 2, God was talking to Adam Evidently, Adam transcribed what God said to Eve, because she seemed to be well aware aware of it, and the serpent said unto the woman, verse 4, You shall not surely die, for God doth know, that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the serpent saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed pig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And then we have, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. You see, for the first time, man was hiding from God up to this point it seemed like God was coming down and literally speaking with them there seemed to have been an open communication with them very very open and free they were talking as friends but this time when God comes into the garden man is hiding from him and God knows immediately something has happened and God asked the question have you eaten of the tree and uh, the answer is well The woman you gave me, she told me, she gave me of the tree, and the woman says, well, the the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. We're passing the buck on, and that's something we still like to do today. Somehow or another, there's not many people in prison tonight that are there because of what they've done. It's because someone else has gotten them into trouble or something or other. But if you talk to many, many prisoners tonight, will not acknowledge that they're there because of what they've done themselves. Interesting to think about that. But now, let's drop down to verse 21 of chapter 3. And we see what happens here in verse 21. And Un, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. Now, I wonder how that happened. We're not given the details of how that happened, but I can only imagine this is literally imagination because we're not told that God would have brought a lamb, someone he made, he got skin, and that Adam and Eve would have watched the painstaking process of that lamb being turned into their clothes. Somehow they became aware of the need for blood. And we're not told how exactly. But in my mind, that's what I see in that passage. But let's look at the next verses. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden, cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. At this point, it seems like it would not have mattered if they'd have went back and eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The damage had been done. But now, the tree of life, which seemed they had free access to prior to this, was now off-limits. This time, God was not going to take any chances that man would come back and take from the tree of life. So he posted a guard over that tree. That guard guarded that tree in every direction. There was going to be no possible way for man to get back to the tree of life. Access denied. You don't hear again from the tree of love about the tree of life till Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, God speaking to the church of Ephesus. This is what He says in verse 7. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. We have again the tree of life mentioned in chapter 2. 22 of Revelation in verse 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to his, as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Behold, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So you have the tree of life in the book of Genesis. You have the tree of life in the book of Revelation. My friends, between the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation, between those first chapters in the book of Genesis and the last chapters in the scriptures, in between that is sandwiched the way back to the tree of life. All of man needs to find that way back to the tree of life. And there is only one way back to the tree of life. Interesting to note. Well, Let's just pick up a few more scriptures. Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 22. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Personally, I don't like to see blood. I don't like to see it when I cut myself. I don't like to see it when an animal is slaughtered. I don't like to see blood. But the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Why is that? Well, let's go to the book of uh, Leviticus, and I believe it tells us here why there has to be the shedding of blood. Chapter 17 of Leviticus, verse 18. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. You see, the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. Blood is typical or spells life without blood there is no life we know that our bodies have blood and it's interesting to me to know as you we're all of one blood it doesn't matter over in Kenya I could be a blood donor in Kenya just as well as I am here and I did over there I gave and I gave I have given here You see, the blood types are the same, the world around. It doesn't matter the color of the person. Blood types are the same. We're of one blood. Mankind is of one blood, and and it's really interesting to, to think about that. But the life is in the blood. But it is interesting that after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after He came to the disciples, Jesus said, a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as he see me have. He didn't say flesh and blood. Flesh and bones. He had given his blood. Interesting to note that. So what's the significance of the blood? Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. And that's why in Genesis chapter 4, when Esau came with those fruits. No, it was Cain when Cain came with those fruits. I believe he had the best of the fruit, and it was probably better fruit than anything we've ever seen, because this was fruit from very early on. You remember when the spies went into Canaan to spy out the land, and they came back with a cluster of grape hanging between two men. I've never seen anything close to that. Grapes, a cluster that big that it took two men to carry it. That was in the land of Canaan, years after Cain's time. So I think when Cain was bringing fruit of the ground, he was bringing something really, really nice. And in Cain's mind, I'm confident he felt like I've got a good gift to give to God. But it was not what God was looking for. And God says to Cain, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted, there was something that Cain knew that we're not told. But I think he realized that he was to bring a blood offering. Abel brought the best of his flock of that lamb, and it was accepted before God. Cain couldn't handle it, and he slew his brother. Move on. Turn me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, I pick up what I consider to be the theme of the Old Testament. God asked Abraham to do something that seemed very strange to me. Somehow we know that God was not sacrificed, was not, would not have been well pleased with human sacrifice. But in this case, he's asking Abraham to take his son and to offer him his son as an offering. We're not told what kind of struggle Abraham had to take Isaac up there to offer his son. We do know that Abraham got up early in the morning. He took Isaac, his son, and a couple servants, and they traveled, and I believe it was in the morning of the third day they could see the place afar off And Abram told his servants to stay there, and him and Isaac, they went up the mountain. Beginning to read in verse 7 of this chapter. And Isaac spake unto Abram his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Powerful question. Where is the lamb? For the burnt offering in my mind that is the theme of the old testament where is the lamb over and over again in the lives of god's people as they were intending to obey god and to follow god and they were finding themselves short they were asking for the lamb they knew there must be a lamb isaac knew enough about the altar and worship that he realized there must be a lamb. And as they were going up there, the communication between father and son, I'm blessed with that. Isaac just turns to his father and says, Father, we got the wood, we got the fire. Where's the lamb? Have we forgotten something? And Abraham gives this answer in verse 8. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. That could be read, could be understood both ways. God will provide himself a lamb. Now it's not capitalized, so I can only believe that Abraham was saying God's going to provide a lamb. It was his way of telling Isaac that God's going to take care of the issue. And they came to the place which God had told them of. And Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, found Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now at this point, right, I don't have on the tip of my tongue how old Isaac was at this point, but I know this. He was old enough that if he had decided he's not going on there that I don't think Abraham could, got, could have got him on. So there was something that Isaac submitted himself to. And he allowed himself to be put on that altar. And as Abraham raises the arm to slay his son, God stops him. And Abram turns around and gets the ram out of the thicket. It tells us in verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? That question, the burning question of the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? Follow the trace, follow and let's trace the Lamb. Exodus chapter 12. So there you have in Genesis chapter 22, you have given the example how it took a lamb for a man. And I believe that that was from the time of Adam to the time of Exodus, of the Passover, there was the need for a lamb for a man. And over and over again, even in the Levitical sacrificial system, when there was a man that had, that had violated the law, he needed to bring a lamb. So there was still that aspect of a lamb for a man. But now in Exodus chapter 12, we have the introduction of yet another principle in verse 3. Speak ye unto the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their father's A lamb for a house. A lamb for a house. This was a new thing. Israel was in Egypt. They were in bondage there. They were tied to slavery. And Moses, when he comes to Pharaoh, we have it, I believe, in Exodus chapter 4, where God tells Moses, you tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. If you don't set him free, I will take your son. So now the plagues have come. Israel has been tied up because Pharaoh refuses to let them go. And God is saying, it's time. It's time. I've given Pharaoh all the chance he needs. He's not set my son free. I'm going to take his son. And so, he tells Israel, and he gives them the, the, the Passover, going over into verse 21 of chapter 12. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel, and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families, and kill the Passover. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, strike it in the lintel on the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin and none of you shall go out of the house of his house until the morning can you imagine what that must have felt like for the firstborn of that whole that family dad do we have a lamb dad have we got the lamb dad did we take the blood did we put it up the side and over the top of that door because they knew that in every house where there was not a lamb where the blood did not cover the house, there was going to be death that night. And the Bible tells us very clearly that in the morning there was not a household in the whole land of Egypt, among the kings, down to the very servants, where there was not a one dead in the house. Unless there was the blood across the top of the door and up the sides of the door. And they had to stay within the house for that night until the death angel had passed. So you have there the lamb for a household. Move on into the book of Leviticus. Now we have the tabernacle system and the system of offerings that has been set up and the day of atonement when the priest once a year would go into the holiest of all. And we have in chapter seven, sixteen, 16, verse 15, 16, and 17 says, Then shall he kill the goat of a sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgression in all their sins and so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and make an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of the children of Israel. Now you have a lamb for the nation. And he mentioned in this verse a lamb for a man. He mentions a lamb for a household. And he mentions a lamb for the nation. So throughout the whole Old Testament, they were constantly looking, where is the lamb? It was the question all the way through the times when they were living. Up till the time of Christ, that question was coming. Where is the lamb? We have to have a lamb of sin. Where is the Lamb? Joshua chapter 7. A very sobering story here. And I'm sure you're aware of it. You've probably heard it. you probably read it yourself. You probably know all about it. But it says in Joshua chapter 7. And I'm just going to pick it up here in verse 20. Achan had sinned. He had taken of the accursed thing. He was not supposed to take, take of And now the lot had been cast, and he'd been found. And so we're going to break in in verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the goodly spoils, when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment, 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold, 50 shekels weight, I coveted them, I took them, and I hid them in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. The Bible tells us in the book of 1 John, no, in the book of James. Hmm. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. What do you have here? Achan says, I saw. I coveted. I took, I hid. The same process. You see, man from that time to this time has not changed but so much. The process of temptation is ours today. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts. It is not proper for us to say when we have sinned, the devil made me do it. Our biggest enemy is us ourselves. It is our flesh that craves to do wrong. We are tempted indeed because there is a longing of our heart that leads us away because by one man sin entered into death and death by sin so death passed about all men. Romans 5 verse 12. My friends, tonight that death process is ours to live with tonight yet. Today we live with that process. But as I look into this setting what really Hits me hard. So Joshua sent his messengers in verse 22. And they ran unto the tent, and behold, it was hid in his tent, and the silver under it. And they took them out of the midst of the tent, brought them unto Joshua and unto all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua took all of Israel with him, took Achim the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his tent, and his sheep and all that he had, and they brought them down to the valley of Acre, and Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? the Lord shall trouble thee this day, and all Israel stoned them with stones, and burned them with fire, after they had stoned them with stones. The question I ask tonight, where was the lamb? Could Achan have brought a lamb? It doesn't mention his wife. Maybe he didn't have a wife by now. I don't know. It mentions his sons, his daughters, or his children, at least. It mentions the silver. It mentions the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his asses, the sheep, his tent, all that he had, but it never mentions his wife. It seems like maybe he didn't have a wife at this time. Maybe she had passed away earlier. But can you imagine this scene? All of Israel is taking this family outside with their belongings, and God says, you stone them with stones. And so I don't know how old those children were, but can you imagine grandpa and the uncles and the greater family as they're taking Achan and his family out there to stone? Can you imagine as the stones begin to fly, and I'm a grandpa, and I've got grandchildren, I cannot imagine what that must have felt like for Aiken's parents, grandpas, for the uncles. And as the stones begin to fly, I can, can you just imagine what that would have felt like? This is a terrible scene. The screams of the children, Grandpa! Where was the lamb? And I ask myself that question many times as I read this story. Why couldn't there have been a lamb? We're not told. Could Achan, if he had humbled himself and brought a lamb, could the story have been different? Where was the lamb? There was no lamb brought, and Achan and his family perished. My friends, tonight, when there is no lamb, there is no sacrifice for sin. No sacrifice for sin. Let's look at James chapter 1 and just look at the process of sin as outlined in James. We looked at it very briefly, but I want to pick it up some more. Verse 14, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. But then he says in the next verse, do not err, my beloved brother. That word err means roam. Do not roam, my beloved brother. Be careful where you're walking. Walk carefully. Study where you are going in your way of going. Make sure you have predetermined that you are walking carefully. Do not err. Do not roam, my beloved brethren. So he's saying, be careful because your flesh will take you astray. It will take you away. Be careful. Think about what you are doing. Plan carefully. Stay away from the pitfalls of the testings of your own lusts and desires. Now we get into the year of the New Testament and we go to St. John in chapter 1. St. John chapter 1. I want to pick up this word in chapter 1. The Lamb of the New Testament. John the Baptist speaking in verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith Behold the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. Up to this point, they were looking for the Lamb. Where is the Lamb? But in chapter 1 of John, everything changes. be From where is the Lamb to behold the Lamb. But He didn't stop there, which taketh away the sin of the world. We looked up a Lamb for a man. We looked at a lamb for a household. We looked at a lamb for a nation. But now we have the lamb for a world. And because there is a lamb for the world, we have the scripture in John chapter 3 where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. My friends, tonight... There is a lamb for the world. And that is the message of the New Testament. You and I can carry that message. You and I can find redemption through Jesus Christ. You and I do not need to bring the sacrificial lamb. It has been slain. It has been paid. The lamb has been slain. The blood has been put upon the altar. It has been paid. You and I don't have to go about that messy business. You and I need to claim the promise. We come to God, and if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My friends, tonight, that promise is ours to call upon God. He will hear us if we call. He that cometh to God, He will in no wise cast out. The Lamb for the world. My friends... as I I cannot present in proper way to you the importance of that land. But let's just go to the site of the crucifixion in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we have Jesus as He is put on that cross. And we have the first words out of the mouth of Jesus as He is hung on that cross. Luke chapter 23 and verse 32. And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. I'm sorry. <clears throat> and when they, had, they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and on the other. Yes, it is. And verse 34, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not, What they do. We spoke this morning about forgiveness. Here is the greatest example of forgiveness this world has ever seen and ever known. There will be another, never be another example that is as key and as clear as this example of Jesus Christ, the very Lamb of God, who was the one who gave his blood, who gave his life for the sins of the whole world. And even those who were killing him, he looks around about upon them as he's hanging on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We have right after this the example of the two thieves on the cross. The first one, is it tells us how that they, one of them is mocking and says, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us, verse 39. The other saying, rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God? He had a change of heart sometime because in the book of Matthew it tells us that they were both mocking Jesus. But now he had a change of heart. Something happened. As he saw that center man on the cross, he knew there was something different. And he looks to Jesus and he says, he tells us, he rebukes his friend. His, the man on the other side. Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. I suppose this may have been the first time that he ever saw Jesus. But he knew here was one that had done nothing amiss. Over and over again, as Pilate looked at him, Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. At least three times, Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. In paradise. The book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, was a paradise. We know that there is going to be the paradise of God, the final place for God's people to be. And Jesus said to this man, "'Today shalt thou be with me in paradise.'" I don't know what all paradise means. I don't know what it exactly means here. It's one of the mysteries of the Scriptures. But it's interesting to note, this man said, "'This man has done nothing amiss.'" And Jesus looks at him and says, "'Today you shall be with me in paradise.'" We look at the cross in the next few minutes in verse chapter chapter 27, of Matthew we have the words of Jesus in verse 46 well let's begin in verse 45 now when the sixth hour there was darkness over all the house over all the land until the ninth hour for three hours there was darkness and we're not told if Jesus said anything during those three hours of darkness there was a centurion at the foot of the cross that was his job was to watch over the body to watch over the crucifixion process to make sure that nothing went amiss and that everything was nothing would happen nobody would come to take try to take those people off of the cross his was the responsibility that when the time of death would come if he would choose he could go ask that we can take, get make it the final his was the chance to break the legs if it was if he would choose his was the chance to choose the time of death for the one on that cross He was charged with the responsibility of watching over that. And that centurion was sitting there and he was watching all of this happen. But the Bible tells us here in Matthew chapter 27, and I believe it's also in Mark recorded, where Jesus suddenly he calls out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't fully understand what happened in that moment and that hour. But it would seem to me that possibly at the moment, as Jesus here realizes the sin of the world is placed upon him and he's carrying them, that God the Father, for the first time, turns his back. You see, at the very beginning, he says, Father, forgive them. He doesn't say that now, he says, My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? If I have it right, that would have been about the ninth hour when he would have said that. We turn now John chapter 19 verse 28. And after this Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished and the scriptures might be fulfilled, he saith, I thirst. Now they said a vessel of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. It is finished. How did he say that? It tells us here that he just said it. But let's go back to the book of Luke, and I think we have a little more of the details of how he said it. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, this is what he says. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice. What did he cry with a loud voice? It is finished. Tectalestal. It was the Greek term that the financial people used when a loan was paid. Stamped, paid in full. It is finished. In a loud voice. And then it tells us. In verse 46 it continues where he says Father into thy hands I commend my spirit The relationship is established again Father forgive my God my God but at the end Father into thy hands I commend my spirit The relationship between Father and son has been reestablished. The work has been finished. It's been done. I'm suspecting that that centurion nearly came out of his shoes when Jesus in a loud voice said, it is finished. And then says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit and bows his head and dies. He was used to hearing the death rattle upon those hanging on that cross. cross. He didn't hear a death rattle. He heard a strong voice coming. It is finished! Not the voice of a man that's weak, almost to die, and to his amazement, the next thing, the man bows his head and dies. The Bible tells us in the book of John, they came and they broke the man, The legs of the man on the left and the right, but not of Jesus. They pierced his side. You see, in my mind, there was a frustration. The chance of them choosing when he would die was taken away from them. He gave his life. The Sandurian did not have the opportunity to decide when he would die. Jesus gave His life. Let's go to the New Testament. I'm sorry. Go to the the book of Revelation, the very end. We've looked at the Old Testament. Where is the Lamb? We've looked at the message of the New Testament. Behold the Lamb. I want to look at the message of eternity. Found in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Beginning in verse 11. And behold, I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and numbers of them about was 10,000 times, ten thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. My friends, worthy is the Lamb. I believe that is going to be the theme of eternity. Even throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, I, will, I believe there will be talk of the Lamb. Searching for the Lamb in the Old Testament, the Lamb revealed in the New Testament, and you and I can be a part of that. We can invite men tonight And women tonight, we can invite them to behold the Lamb. And for all those who behold the Lamb and take that sacrifice and make it personal. By receiving Christ, by confessing their sins, realizing that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Realizing that Jesus, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That is the only way to God. It is the only way out of our sinful condition. It is the only way to find freedom. It is the only way to find peace. It is the only way to be set free from the bondage of sin. Invite others to behold the Lamb. That is our message tonight. But as eternity comes... We will continue on with a message. Worthy is the Lamb. Bow our heads for prayer. Thank you, God, tonight for your word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lamb. We thank you that your word makes it abundantly clear there's a path back to the tree of life. And everyone that receives the Lamb beholds the Lamb and comes to grip with the issue of our sins and confessing it before you. Receiving the blood of Jesus as a covering for our sin. We will behold the Lamb And one day, be able to be among those, that blood wash band that stands around the throne and with voices that don't get tired as we shout, worthy is the Lamb. Oh, God, tonight, I pray that you would grip every one of our hearts tonight with appreciation for the Lamb that has been slain the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It's in the name of Christ we ask it. Amen. You can stand to your feet.